Welcome to Glossonomia, conversations about the sounds of speech. I'm Phil Thompson, and here with me, as always, is Eric Armstrong. Hey, Eric. Hi there. How are you? I'm swell. Uh, so this is episode 19 of Glossonomia. It feels like we're approaching a landmark here. Mm. Uh, as discussed in the last multi-episode episode, uh, we're moving back now to a consonant, mm. uh, a cognate pair, as we usually do, uh, which is s, or rather sh and j. Uh, do you think there's anything we need to bring people up to speed with in terms of our format and structure, or are they old hands by now? Uh, you know, I think we're pretty clear. We're, we're going to talk about the background of the sound and where where we use it, where we hear it. Terrific. So uh, this is an interesting uh, pair of sounds, uh, and I've gone back and forth in thinking about how we ought to approach it. Oftentimes we'll we'll talk about the... Spelling. We'll talk about the history of the sound change. Uh, we'll talk about the articulatory actions. And I, I think today it might be best to talk about the articulatory actions to make sure that we're all on the same page sure. and then go back into the complicated history of both how it's pronounced historically and how it's pronounced now. So uh, let's start it off with the unvoiced pair. And this is these are... Post-alveolar fricatives, yes? Yes, post-alveolar, so behind the gum ridge in some way. Yeah. Yeah, now, the, you know, I was looking at uh, the Latifoged and uh, Madison, Mad Madison, we, we still don't know how to pronounce his name, <laughs> no. do we? Um, we could use one of the sounds and call it Madison. <laughs> um, and uh, they they talk, they show a bunch of, X-ray pictures of the tongue for comparing S and sh, um, and uh, they they show some very interesting X-rays of S. That S tends to have because of the sort of front edge of the tongue coming up near the the gum ridge, the alveolar ridge, um, a kind of a cupping action, the mm -hmm. center of the tongue uh, about well in in uh, they used. Um, Peter Latifoged's tongue uh, in one of the x-rays, and the center of his tongue was about 12 millimeters down from where the edge of his tongue was. Um, I, I think what they did was they painted barium on the center of his tongue, and then they <laughs> did an x-ray so you could see exactly what part was down and what part was up. And so there, there was kind of a, a, a channel, a grooved channel mm -hmm. down the center of his tongue. Force. Force. Whereas shh. Uh, did not have the uh, a very deep grooving. It had a very minimal grooving, maybe two millimeter difference. Um, yeah. And from my own tongue, my own experience of shh, I think of it as a wider, flatter, slightly more yeah. open uh, space. Still a sense of groove down the center of the tongue, but a mm -hmm. wider, more open pipe for the, the air to travel out. And ultimately, the angle of attack of yeah. Very different from the angle of attack for shh. Um, I was reading uh, Henry Rogers, um, who is a Canadian phonetician who who has a uh, um, a book on the sounds of 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 language, and 
he describes S as generally being aimed towards the upper tooth area and sh as being aimed, roughly speaking, towards the lower front teeth, um, which I suppose is an interesting way yeah, of, interesting. of thinking about it. Well, it's, this is usually a sound when I'm conveniently moving through the structure of the consonant chart with my students. It's very easy to talk about place, and mm -hmm. the bilabial sounds are bilabial. You're pretty much clear about what you're doing there. And then as we move from this alveolar position to a post-alveolar position, it's time for me to confess that something else is going on, yeah. that we can't simply keep moving the the place of activity back and let that describe the sound completely. There's other stuff going on. And in this case, absolutely, there's some sort of change in aperture. Uh, I love this notion of less deep grooving, uh, that there's a flatter area, which makes a lot of sense, uh, because as we discussed in the z episode, uh, hyper and hypo sibilants have, are really strongly influenced by the shape of the aperture. And I believe we talked in that episode as well about the way in which either uh, the perception of direction or direction itself of airflow creates a different kind of turbulence. Yes. And, and these sounds are fricatives. They're created by air turbulence. Uh, and in the case of shh, uh, I detect in my own articulation a back position. That is to say I'm further back in, in the business area of articulation, yes. uh, wherever the tip of my tongue is, wherever the sides of my tongue are, uh, I have a flatter, wider aperture. I certainly bring my lip corners forward, yes. although I, I could potentially do it without that. And I, I think this has to do with guiding the airflow medially. So, mm, I think there's more to it than that, actually. It's a lengthening, the lengthening of the tube, as it were, yeah, yeah. and contrasting the uh, release point, that window, as you called it, further back in the mouth and the the space beyond that lengthening narrowing that tube so that that will increase the uh, and lower the focus point of that noise so if s has a higher focus point to that noise spectrum sh has a lower one and you can hear that if you start with a sh with spread lips and sp moves from spread lips to rounded lips, you can lower the, the overall, overall tone of your, yeah. your esh sound. Yeah, I, I think that we may, you've said it much more clearly, but I think that this is the direction that I was going for, that there's a, a holding in of the airflow so that it doesn't spread mm. out immediately after yes. that aperture. Uh, and it certainly feels like... Uh, uh, a gestural, uh, perhaps unnecessary gestural amplification that uh, as I'm making that sh tongue shape, I feel like I want to make the lip shape as well. But you're absolutely right that I'm guiding that airflow and leaving a part of the tube where the turbulent air can't spread immediately outward. Mm -hmm. uh, so if, if I do that, unrounded, it definitely changes in pitch. When the other thing we shouldn't uh, play down too much is the fact that we are, generally speaking, uh, 
lip reading each other at the same time as yes. we are listening to one another. And there is an advantage to adding the lip component to sh that in a noisy environment you will be able to see that I'm making a sh as well. Now, sh is, interestingly enough, one of the noisiest fricatives there is, which is probably explains yeah. why it's no used as the silencing gesture uh, yeah. to tell people to, sh to shush up, because it's so broad spectrum that uh, it doesn't matter what noise we have in the environment, part of that band will, will poke through the other noises in the room Ultimately, the sh sound is uh, very effective in being heard. I actually knew a French teacher who would use s to try to silence our class. He was not very mm. effective at silencing us. I think that was just partly due to the fact that we were in grade 8, or in the 8th <laughs> grade, as we say in the United States. Um, the, uh, the, the, we were just so noisy, we wouldn't listen to him anyway. Yeah. But uh, s didn't seem to pierce in the way that sh seems to to work. In fact, uh, if I'm in a theater and somebody's being noisy, I all I have to really do is turn around and move my lip corners forward, and they understand that I'm shushing them. Yes. Interestingly, we have also this finger-to-the-lip gesture, and I'm not quite sure what that's about. It does not have an articulatory function, we can say. Yes, I don't, I don't <laughs> think it's going to lower the pitch even further. Although, I, I must say, and this is a complete side note, my father-in-law truly believed that he could blow out a candle better if he put his finger in front of his lips when he blew it out. Uh, he had a, a theory about it. There wasn't really, really? any evidence. but uh, And he would adjust the position of his finger in between his lips and the candle. And he, he felt that that would create uh, some sort of wind tunnel effect that would blow out the candles better. How intriguing. Or it was all part of his master plan to confuse me. So... I don't know. So, yes, we've got this articulation which has a lip, a lip corner aspect to it. And as I'm working through the consonant chart with my students, I find this an instructive moment uh, mm -hmm. where they get to say, you haven't given us enough information yet. Uh, you've been talking about placement, but I'm trying to do this placement and I, I'm not making the sound. And when they discover, there's a, a moment often where they say, <laughs> you failed, uh, and I try to create that moment so that they're in charge of saying what that articulation really is composed of, as, as we've just done. Mm. Right. Uh, so they're discovering it themselves. So the other aspect, the other the cognate in this pair is the voiced form, which is je. And it's interesting to me. I'm, I'm trying to think of uh, whether or not in practice I do more or less lip rounding on zh than on sh. And I think, I certainly have more airflow on the unvoiced version, and so maybe I'm articulating more vigorously, and that moves my lips cor lip corners forward. Uh, but I think that I'm not doing as much lip corner advancement on the voiced form. Is that your intuition as well? Um, for me, they feel almost identical. So... yeah. Maybe maybe uh, maybe I'm weird. Maybe you're weird. Maybe there's some variety there. Indeed. And with any speaker, just from one instance to the next, you're going to make differences. And that's why, one reason why it's so difficult to figure out what we're really doing, because when we pay attention to it, it changes. Exactly. And 
uh, I do feel that with voice sounds, I tend to articulate less because the voicing seems to take care of making mm -hmm. the noise for me. Yeah. Um, and so I, I wouldn't be surprised if I discovered hmm. by watching a video of myself where I was recorded without, you know, attending to myself. I think that's that's really so much the problem, you know, that if we we yeah. pay attention to something, then we tend to change it. And that's probably my my flaw. I, I usually call that the Heisenberg uncertainty principle of speech. That the observation affects the experiment. Yes. Uh, so, we've got these two articulations. Uh, they're fricatives. They're post-alveolar, but there are other articulatory actions that are regularly a part of them. Uh, as, as phonemes, they uh, certainly both exist in English. Um, and they exist in, in lots of other languages as well. Uh, I'm sure if I went to Wikipedia right now, I'd find a list of the languages. It's one of the things that I've noticed on a couple of these sounds, that Wikipedia has a lovely, often, list of languages that use that sound. Yes, I looked at it earlier today, mm -hmm. and uh, the Wikipedia entry for shh has a, a fair, you know, pretty long list, not as long as some of the sounds, but a, a pretty long list. A few of them are as part of an affricate pair, mm -hmm. so a ch kind of sound, um, uh, or shk. Um, but mm. um, overall, the, the, they are um, pretty, pretty consistent, uh, sh and zh. Interestingly, in my, my impression is that there are far more sh sounds in English than there are zh sounds in English. I think that's true. Uh, and uh, maybe I can save some of that for when we talk about the history, because I think there are some historical reasons why these sounds and how these sounds exist in English. The, yes. Uh, we, we ought to take a, a wee look into what an affricate is, uh, mm. because if I recall correctly, it's only been 19 episodes, but we haven't done affricates yet. No, no, we haven't. Um, so an affricate is a combination sound that begins with a stop plosive and then releases into a fricative. So there are two of those in English, ch and j. Yeah. Um, so they begin with an alveolar stop and release into a post-alveolar fricative. Um, and they, they make the sounds that we associate with the ch spelling, ch, mm -hmm. and the j, which is typically represented by j or dg, something mm -hmm. along those lines. And uh, we can go into more depth about those later, but at least we can use it as a way of distinguishing these sounds don't begin from a closed position. And mm -hmm. for people who haven't spent any time thinking about the sounds that they make, that's sometimes difficult to cope with. Uh, yes. They, they, if you don't know that you're doing that, it's rather difficult to hear it, particularly if your language doesn't have the African form. Uh, all you have available is the sh or the je. So let's take a little detour into the symbols, if you don't mind, before going sure. into the history. Uh, so shall we start with the IPA phonetic symbols? Yeah, that's what I'm as thinking. As opposed to the spelling? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the unvoiced form, the sh sound, uh, uses... A sort of a long S. I should be careful and not call it the long S because there is a typographic symbol, the long S, uh, that is uh, that doesn't looks have a bit like an F, doesn't yeah, exactly. it? The long S. And yes. I think we might have talked about that in the f, f episode. Uh, 
we shouldn't. And we, I think we, we talked about it in the S episode. Uh, there we go. So people who've listened already know. They, they know more about it, and I've forgotten about it already. So uh, I won't try to explain, explain that anymore. But long S is not what we're talking about. We're talking about this extended, tall S, we could call it. Stretched out S. Yeah. It's, and um, it does sort of look like it has the tail of a J and the top of an F, in a way. Yes, and it, it, its vertical member is straight, that is to say perpendicular to the baseline. And it right. ascends above the middle line and go. Wait a minute, does it go below the lower line? It does, absolutely. Yeah. It, it is, in fact, the tallest symbol in the IPA, um, that having made foam versions of all the symbols in the uh, IPA, the sh symbol is the longest, uh, which, if you're making something out of foam, gives it very little <laughs> structural integrity, unfortunately. I, I um, wonder if uh, the dental click has, is longer because it's just a bar. Uh, it, it would be the same length. Okay. Um, and because it's got curly ends on it, the ultimate length of the piece of <laughs> All right, I buy material that. is longer. <laughs> so um, so that, that sh sound, uh, we, we, the name for that symbol is called esh, yeah. um, in the same way that so many of our letters uh, like F or M or N begin with that eh sound and then the sound of that it makes is tacked on the end. Esh is uh, its name. And then the voiced pair is called Ej yeah. that goes with it. And that's interestingly spelled E-Z-H. And I think when we come back to spelling conventions, we can talk about why that might be. Uh, okay. But both the symbols, oh, we haven't described the symbol yet. I, I apologize. The Ej symbol is, you could think about it as a uh, angular top three uh, but it's probably more accurate to think about it as a Z with a hook at the bottom, a big old hook at the bottom. Yes, it's as if the the bottom member of the Z, or Z as we say around here, mm -hmm. is a backward C that descends below yeah. the the uh, the baseline. Um, it does look like a three that's been shifted down, um, and it, it is indeed a flat top three, if that helps. There is a... a a curvy-topped Z, yes, called a yoj, yeah, um, and a yoj is actually a different symbol, and it's derived originally from Latin G. Yeah, so um, the the ej is is uh, an important yeah difference. The yoj or the yoch, I think it's also called. Uh, yes, probably more more accurate. It it had more of a y pronunciation, uh, although sometimes it alternated with G. I think we might have talked about that in some previous episodes, but it's a false friend. Uh, it, yes. it never had the J pronunciation. Uh, the, there's another symbol, actually, that, uh, has, that looks very much the same, and that's in Japanese, yes, in the... Mm. Uh, the ro and ru Yes, symbol. exactly. I was hoping, since you've studied some Japanese, that you would give me that name for that mora. <laughs> yes. The, uh, uh, it's a part of the hiragana, which is one of the syllabaries that, that yeah. is, in other words, it's used in a sort of phonetic spelling. Yeah, those are called more, right? M-O-R, the plural is... Uh, each, each syllable is called a more. 
Yeah. Or, or singular uh, mora. Yeah. Uh, and, but uh, the symbols are uh, symbols. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they, uh, the hiragana is the name for the, the style of alphabet, if you will. Yeah. Um, so it does look similar to it, though the, the sort of center point of the... If you imagine it being sort of like a flat top three, mm-hmm. the center point of Rho goes much further out yeah. to the left. It really looks like um, it's just been stretched or that it was written quickly. Yes. Uh, so, again, another false friend, I suppose, if you see that symbol, you might be tempted to use that symbol since it's in the Unicode font, probably. You could dump it in there. I don't know if it's in Unicode, actually. Uh, I would think if you have a Unicode font that supports Japanese hiragana, it would be in there. So don't use it, I guess is what we're saying. Don't. Uh, Don't. While there's another footnote on this particular topic of the symbol, which is that that symbol, the edge, or a similar symbol to it, which is really a version of a sort of black letter Z, uh, was used by apothecaries to be the uh, abbreviation for a dram. Uh, oh, apparently. I did not know that. Uh, but again, not, that's not the sound we're looking for. Right. Uh, the, the symbols, the esh and the ej symbols, together with the names esh and ej, were introduced by Isaac Pittman, the, the shorthand guy, in uh, oh. 1847. Uh, so How interesting. Yeah, I, and he was using them very much to represent these sounds because, of course, part of the impulse behind shorthand was a sort of uh, simplification by phonetic transcription because phonetic transcription in theory it has fewer ambiguous symbols, l- fewer letters to write and so forth. So he was trying to right. shorthand it uh, by always using that symbol. Uh, there's another symbol that... Uh, all right, so we've got those IPA symbols. Uh, we know that the esh is an ascender and a descender. It goes above and below the line. The edge goes below the line but doesn't go above the middle line, the, the dotted line, if you will. Mm. Uh, we know some of our false friends. Uh, and I, I wanted to bring up two other ways of writing the zh and the sh sound. Uh, one is the either an S or a Z with a caron, uh, over the top. I don't know what the difference between a caron and a hachek is. I think hachek actually uh, is the term from whichever, Hungarian is I, it? From? I, or Czech. Uh, it's one of those languages. That's the term that they use, whereas caron is the um, typographic term for, it's a little V over top of the letter. It's a, like an accent character, a, a diacritic. Um, that rests above a, a Z or a or Z, and it's a, um, a V shape. It's not rounded. The there is a rounded mark in IPA diacritics. This one is is a V, really. It's a V. Um, now there, uh, you also mentioned Z, uh, Z with a symbol above it for Esperanto. Uh, Wikipedia says that Esperanto uses Z with a circumflex, ah, uh, the other an direction. upside down. Yes, the other direction above it for the zh sound. That is great. Uh, It's so easy to make those mistakes and to invert those uh, rarely used things because, of course, I never use this symbol. However, a friend of mine was asking me about, uh, I don't know why he needed to know this, but uh, uh, he was 
trying to figure out how to pronounce a word that he had discovered was from a proto-Afro-Asiatic root. I can't even remember the word now. Uh, it's like eat or meal or something. And it used this symbol. Uh, so I had to go and figure out what the linguist was talking about, what symbols he was using, and found that a lot of these sort of historical linguists or comparative linguists still use these symbols for je and right. she. So you'll definitely see it. Uh, so uh, if the Z has the caron above it, uh, would we see an S with a caron above it for the sh well, I, symbol? I really think so, but I, as I look at my notes, I see that I didn't write anything down about that. So that's an open question, but I, I'd be surprised if there wasn't one of those. I, I believe that's true. Uh, there, there's also another convention which uh, J.C. Wells had a, a blog post about this a while back, not too very long ago, I think, uh, about the way we transliterate the Russian z symbol. The, mm. the Cyrillic symbol is looks like a wonderful, uh, you know the video game uh, Galaga? Uh, it looks like yes. a, a spaceship coming to kill you. <laughs> Uh, it's sort of like... It's, it's an X with a vertical stroke in the middle. Kind of, except that it, it really appears to be two intersecting Vs uh, that overlap with an intersecting line. So it's... You know what it is? I think it's a, a capital letter K with its mirror ooh, image yeah. backed up against it. I love that. That's exactly right. Uh, so it's... Anybody know what that's called? No. A logo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm certain that uh, someone, yes. another Eric, will will send us an email saying, "Ah, oh, that is a exactly." This is why we put the errors in the podcast so that people will send us mail. It makes us feel better. Just to make sure you're still yeah. awake. So that's a really symbol. Uh, let's say in Doctor Zhivago, we could imagine, uh, is usually transliterated as ZH. Mm. And, uh, you know, we, I'd say most people who don't have a lot of knowledge about linguistics or phonetics would still look at a ZH and figure out that it was a Z sound. Uh, that seems to right. be in our spirit. And we've got, like, Brezhnev. I guess we got have Khrushchev, uh, which is slightly different. Uh, so we, we've seen that orthography, that way of spelling the Z sound. But that's certainly not the way we spell either the sh sound or the zh sound in English, in our own spelling. So I'm thinking we could go back to that, sort of the history of how these sounds came into English, how they operate in English, and how the spelling came about. Does that make sense? Sure, yes. I think, I think ZH is a convention that's been made up based on how SH Absolutely. works. Doesn't that? Absolutely. In the same way that sometimes the the sound, the voice th is represented by dh. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, d is the voiced equivalent of t. Yeah, and that's what spelling is for. There's a book that I've referred to before called Alpha Beta, uh, which is by a man named John Mann. And uh, one of the points that he makes that I think is wonderful is that we, our alphabet, the Western alphabet, is perfectly poised between being phonetic, accurately describing sounds, and being loose. That it doesn't, it's not a straitjacket for us. So it's impressionistic. 
And so you can look at old writing, even if the pronunciation is changed, and get an idea of what sort of the, the history of its pronunciation was, just intuitively. So that's certainly true for SH and ZH, although the ZH spelling, I guess you could say if we discount Russian words, it's not really a spelling for Z in English. There are no English words with a ZH spelling until... Z- uh, unless a, a recent coinage such as to zhuzh your hair, <laughs> uh, which is written Z-H-U-Z-H. I, um, I accept that. Uh, and there was a blog entry on that on the Wells site, wasn't there? Uh, I, I don't remember that, but I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, yes, he's got to write about something. <laughs> so uh, let's start with the sh sound in English. In Old English, the, there were plenty of sh words, and they were spelled unambiguously as sc. And uh, when we talked about a we talked about the ash symbol, and the word ash is spelled A-S-C, uh, and that S-C is pronounced as sh. Now, in many, many cases, in initial positions in words, there's an S-C-E, or an, I think sometimes an S-C-I, which is pronounced as sh, and this seems to me a, an instance of palatalization, that occurs in other languages and occurs, in fact, on an ongoing basis in other English words. That is, if I'm moving from a s sound into an e sound, my tongue is going to be pulled a little bit back towards the sh sound. So in Old English words like, I'll find one, schurte, uh, which is skirt and shirt, it's the, the, uh, this was an amazing revelation to me that essentially short, skirt, and shirt were linguistically related and uh, physically related because uh, a shirt was a, an item worn by men and women and it was a short tunic. And uh, the difference between a, a shirt and a skirt is really who's wearing them. <laughs> Uh, a man right. wears a shirt, a long shirt that goes down to his knees, and a woman then wears a skirt. Uh, and as the meanings diverged, the, uh, so did the costume practices. Uh, but they arise from this, looks like skeort, S-C-E-O-R-T. Oh, I thought it was S-C-Y-R-T. Uh, w- was let me double check here because... There that's, that's what your note says All right, here. well, good. Then I've... It's a good thing I write things down. You, you, you combine short and ah, the short skirt. Uh, yes, short was short, and short was short and skirt. Yes, exactly. And, and also there are words like shed or shot, or one of my favorites, bishop, uh, which is spelled B-I-S-C-E-O-P, and is related to uh, episcopal. Uh, right. Epis, episcopus scopes around. <laughs> he's right. he's uh, overseas. So I suppose you could say no. overseer equals episcopus, episcopus equals bishop, uh, with a C spelling in it. Uh, and right. 
and that's an old English word that was pronounced with a sh, even though you can see some evidence of what I take to be a sk pronunciation. I don't know if that's true. Uh, and I don't know when that sc really arose in English. Uh, I, I imagine that it's in Beowulf. So let me leave that alone and uh, just talk briefly about the fact that it happens also at the ends of words. Uh, words like fish and dish were spelled F-I-S-C and D-I-S-C, and it, you can absolutely see the shared etymology of dish and disc just in the spelling. Uh, so I suppose that we should talk about hard dishes uh, and floppy dish drives. Uh, <laughs> Uh, or compact dish. Compact dish. So this SC uh, spelling in Old English served great. It was a perfect way to represent the sh sound in Old English words. There was a little bit of confusion when Norse words started to come in. Uh, skeet. What is that? Or, no, I guess that's geets in Beowulf. Uh, Skipper, I guess, is a later construction with ship and skip going together. Uh, I'm at a loss not to think of any... But a word like skill, perhaps, might have had a a Norse origin. And so we can look at those SK words that are unambiguously to us pronounced sk, and that was the way early English spellers distinguished uh, between these Norse words that were pronounced with a k and the English words that were pronounced sh. Uh, there was a spelling difference that clearly indicated how they should be pronounced. Unfortunately, uh, with the Norman Conquest, French Norman words started to come into English with an SC spelling, but a sk pronunciation. And so the response eventually in English spelling was to start to spell the sh words SCH. So that they could be distinguished from SC words, which now were like SK words pronounced sk. And that continued, and uh, we still have plenty of words uh, in English with SCH spellings. Like schedule. Well, yes, I'm sort of holding off on that one a little bit. Uh, (laughs) Let me talk about one word that... uh, the, the problem, and this is the problem with schedule a little bit, is that there's an interaction with Greek words and our understanding of how Greek right. words are spelled and pronounced. So right. a word in English that came from Greek, uh, skola, was pronounced shola, S-C-O-L-A. So in Old English, all those related words were sh words. Uh, so school and uh, scholastic scholarship, all those words went through a phase, if they went through this phase, where they were pronounced sh. Uh, And the only word that didn't get corrected by Greek (laughs) to a sk, school, scholastic, uh, was a shoal of fish, uh, which we now spell S-H-O-A-L. But it was a shoal of fish is a school of fish, uh, but because it stayed in the ocean and didn't go into academia, it didn't get its re-Greekifying k pronunciation. So most words then changed from the S-C-H because, of course, 
Now S-C-H is going to be pronounced sk. Uh, so the spelling shifted now. So many, many, many words in English that have an S-H, particularly at the beginning, but also at the end. And I'm trying to think, of, there must be one or two in the middle, fishing. There we go. Uh, the S-H clearly represents the sh pronunciation. The only place where I can think of where S-H doesn't represent sh is at uh, in compound words like hogshead, uh, where really it's broken apart by the two syllables. Right. Misheard. Yes, exactly. All right, there's more on this. Ah, yes, another funky spelling of, uh, of sh is just plain s. The word that we're most familiar with uh, that has this s-only pronunciation of sh is the word sure. Uh, that, too, comes to us from Latin securus, secure. Uh, it moved into French with the spelling s-e-u-r, and I'm not sure what the spelling and the pronunciation in Old French was, but it was essentially, in English, a case of sure becoming sure. And this gets into the, the main way in which non-SH, non-SH spellings become them. Be- exactly. They become sure sounds in English because of a thing called yod coalescence. Mm. I love that expression, uh, yod coalescence. Oh, it's a beautiful yes. one. Well, I love yod. Uh, <laughs> it's better than why. Uh, so, yod coalescence, uh, I'm going to have to roll out a couple of other big words. Uh, it occurs in English diachronically and synchronically. Mm. So, y- it's easy to figure out what that means, sort of etymologically. Synchronic is same time, and diachronic is sort of across time. So, diachronic change is historical change. And that's sort of what I've been talking about right here, that uh, a certain pronunciation, uh, let's, this isn't quite the right sound, but let's take the word picture. Nobody pronounces it picture. That y affected the sh sound, the, the s sound, sorry, and turned it into a new pronunciation. Uh, I suppose fisher is a, pro, uh, that is to say, a crack in the rocks is a fissure. Right. At some point, it was a fissure. And through the ongoing process of yod coalescence, that is to say, uh, because of the articulatory necessity or the articulatory convenience of saying uh, sh instead of sur, it became the pronunciation. Right. And the, the spelling, it isn't a lot of orthoepical texts, a lot of older texts about spelling and pronunciation, uh, put it in a confusing way. That is, S is pronounced as sh. But really, the S-U in fissure records s and u. uh, And it's the combining of this sound with the y sound in that articulation that makes a sh sound. So it's not as though the S is representing the sh, it's the sy that's representing the sh. So this happens both diachronically over time, but it also happens synchronically. Uh, I might say, is this your chair? But I might equally say, is this your chair? Is this your? And synchronic change is the ubiquitous 
change within speech. Uh, uh, it's a process, an ongoing pressure on articulation, uh, a pressure on articulation. That when two sounds butt up against each other, essentially? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or it's, it's when you've got to make your way through an obstacle course of articulation. Right. And your mouth brain sees a shortcut. So that's a synchronic change. And a exactly. diachronic change is when a word's pronunciation changes over time. Well, let me make it clearer. Pressure is a diachronic change because it's changed. Right. Nobody says pressure. Uh, but if you say press your face against the glass, press your face against the glass, that's diachronic, rather synchronic, because it happens variably. There's a sense that both exist. And obviously one feeds the other. Right. Uh, sound change over time happens because of the way people variably pronounce things and uh, our impression of how the word, what its substructure is, changes over time. So there are lots and lots of words that have that structure in English. And the, uh, to get back to sure, that really is one as well. Sure was sure and became sure because of that same process. Right. One that's sort of not quite in that category is sugar, which is a, a very common word. Uh, it came into English really pretty late. And I think it came from, a, from an Arabic word. No, I'm getting a little confused about that. It certainly came into European culture from outside and... Sure was already long established in English, and then we have this sukar, uh, which I suppose became suger and went through the same process. Or people looked at the spelling, which had come from other sources, and said, it's just like sure, it should be pronounced sugar. Mm. In initial positions, I right now can't think of another SU or S anything, spelling, uh, besides age, that produces the sh pronunciation. I have to go to Irish for, for that. Uh, and, and in a way, that's the same process that's happening in Irish. When you have a name like Sean or Siobhan, Sean is S-E, Siobhan is S-I, and the movement from the S sound into a front vowel it's just convenient. It's a, a, a process that makes it, uh, that yields, let's say, this sh pronunciation. Is that all making sense? It does. It's, uh, it's a long story, but it's a good one. It really is. Uh, there are, th now let's see if we can come back to schedule, because that's a, that's a tricky one. Because it exists in English with, let's say now, two pronunciations, two valid pronunciations. One of those is schedule, uh, and the other is schedule. And I suppose we could say that schedule is winning. There are fewer and fewer people who pronounce the word schedule. But if we follow the history of it back, it was actually schedule uh, in its, when it came into English. Uh, there's a little confusion about how it came into English, but it was originally spelled with a C, and pronounced schedule. It, it 
probably in the mid 19th century, maybe earlier, it uh, started to develop a sh pronunciation. But it seems the spelling changed much earlier. Uh, Shakespeare, whenever he uses schedule, it's S-C-H. I don't know of any S-H spellings. So we go from a C spelling to an S-C-H spelling, and then we have a choice. Do we pronounce it uh, as the yod-coalesced version of schedule, that is schedule? Uh, there are s- certainly historically S-C-H words in English that, as I said before, that are pronounced sh. So that's a valid arm. But then there's a sort of Greek spelling-influenced sk, as in scholastic, uh, which yields schedule. And as dictionaries started to weigh in on this uh, pronunciation, both were valid. And uh, there was a good deal of description uh, in various pronouncing and other dictionaries about how it ought to be pronounced. And essentially, the schedule version one in the United States and the schedule version one in England, uh, neither one of them is necessarily, as is always the case, you can't say one is the valid and one is the invalid pronunciation. They, they all have their advocates because people want to believe that they pronounce things for a reason, uh, but neither one of them can really be traced back to the history of the spelling. Right. Uh, I do think that schedule is getting more traction in the UK than it used to. Absolutely. I don't have the wonderful pie charts from the Longman Dictionary in front of me, but it does seem uh, that he makes a distinction about uh, how the age of the people that he polled, that older people tend to say schedule, Younger people tend to say schedule. That's my my recollection, at least. Uh, I think that's right. But it might change again. You never know. There's another word that I just want to point to, which has an interesting ambiguity, but none of its pronunciations are sh, and that's schism, or, as it's still pronounced, schism. Right. I don't know of any schism pronunciation uh, or any that has sort of a constituency, uh, although, you know, there's probably somebody who pronounces it that way. And uh, so it doesn't really fit our topic because it doesn't have those pronunciations, but it does have the same uh, spelling. And again, it's a sort of war between the English tradition of pronunciation and a a Greek sort of spelling pronunciation, you could say. Right. Uh, the uh, the word eschew uh, uh, would also be an, another one which yeah. the, some people pronounce it issue, uh, like issue with the stress on the mm-hmm. alternate syllable. Um, yeah. That uh, where um, there are there are more than one pronunciation out there, and uh, people can't necessarily agree. Um, some people eschew. Um, uh, so there, there, there's kind of a, a, a debate about how to pronounce. And, you know, uh, these are words that don't get said very often. And so I, I yes. feel that a lot of people look at them and sort of have to make a guess at 
how to pronounce yeah. them, and they we can't be bothered to look it up, and so uh, <laughs> it, it uh, attains a certain pronunciation as a result. Even if they do look it up, they're going to find themselves having to make a choice between a, a variety of entries sometimes. Yes, I think that's true. Um, you know, I, I, I think that Yod Coalescence thing, we often see it in things like uh, ocean and uh, talking mm-hmm. about uh, o- oceanic uh, that uh, possibility, not not everybody says oceanic, yeah. but uh, the possibility of it not being coalesced in all its, its instances is an interesting one. Yeah, and sometimes and people doing Shakespeare, they're doing things like saying issue uh, as a way of kind of heightening the text, which seems to be like a, almost a hypercorrection. I suppose if you were doing one of those uh, original pronunciation productions, then you would be saying things like uh, ambition or... Uh, uh, yeah, that's an interesting point because I, I certainly... That seems to be where the evidence points. But I was looking in, in Kokoritz, uh, that is Helga Kokoritz uh, pronouncing... How, what's the title of it? Um, Sha- pronouncing Shakespeare's names? Yes, I think like that's that. right. And... He lists Casio instead of Casio. And so what I'm not entirely sure about is whether or not what the history of Yacht Coalescence is, uh, whether, whether in original pronunciation, that is to say early modern English pronunciation, whether uh, there was incomplete Yacht Coalescence or whether there was, in some cases, more Yacht Coalescence than we would say today. Uh, we might say... Casio instead of Casio. I'm under the impression that it was one of those things like uh, that today we we are still tolerant of people pronouncing the ed in things like beloved um, mm-hmm. as a poetic device because the meter demands that we add that extra yeah. syllable. Um, my understanding is that in Elizabethan time, saying something like amb- amb- ambition uh, was tolerated mm-hmm. as a poetic device of using an old-fashioned pronunciation as a way of making the verse work. Um, and that the Yod coalescen- you... coalescence had happened, but it, um, it was still fairly new. And, uh, and as you pronounced it, it was ambition rather than ambition. Yes. Uh, which keeps the syllabic count and doesn't involve Yod coalescence. Right. I suspect that they, the, from what I remember of reading about original pronunciation productions, uh, that uh, David Crystal in particular has been pointing to uh, Sian instead of Sheehan. So I may have misspoke. And we've already talked about the way there's variety in modern pronunciation. I wouldn't be at all surprised to see variety and ambiguity in early modern English pronunciation. Mm. Uh, it just, uh, when I first saw that in Kokoritz, I thought, wait a minute, I thought we were moving the other direction, and that seems more Yod coalescence than I would do. Right. Um, so, a confused landscape. But I, I do think that you're right, that uh, it is, I don't think you said this directly, but I, I inferred it, that it's pretentious to say issue. You're uh, pretending to be something that either you aren't or that doesn't make sense in the context, that uh, we don't know if Shakespeare said 
uh, issue, or I don't, rather, uh, we, we do know that he said households, and we don't drop the H's there. So uh, are we meant to do exactly what Shakespeare did? Uh, and if we say issue, what we're really doing is pointing to a, a now somewhat historical but much more contemporary English pronunciation uh, rather than to, to distinguish ourselves from North Americans. Yes. Uh, and that seems an odd endeavor to me. Mm-hmm. Well, while we're talking a bit about uh, S becoming Esh, um, there is that interesting pronunciation of uh, words like question becoming question or yeah. mis- mischief becoming mischief. Um, that that uh, uh, assimilation of yeah. the ch place uh, that the the post-alveolar action is blending into that yeah. preceding s. There aren't many instances of s before ch, but uh, when it does happen, there that is a, uh, a something that does occasionally happen, and so we get question and uh, and mischief. Yeah, you might think about it as a sort of pre-articulation. Yeah, uh, that's an assimilation of some kind. We're at, at anticipating the articulation of the next sound. Uh, there is also, I suppose... No, I'm going to leave that out. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to walk down a rabbit hole. You could see it coming. So, uh, Shall we move on to... Yeah, let's do that. And let's talk first about the ones that are sort of unambiguously before we talk about the ones that vary between and sh. Uh, these are, in most instances... Yod coalescence. There are really two ways in which je exists in English. Uh, one is piggybacking off of French words, and the other is through yod coalescence in the same way with sh, but in voiced forms. So a word l- that ends in s-i-o-n, uh, depending on the context, may be shun or jeun. So vision. Uh, also, U-R-E endings like treasure and pleasure. Uh, and there are, I was saying this to my wife as I bored her with this uh, in advance of this discussion, uh, that my first impulse when I say je words in English, oh, well, they're just, they're none, or they're three or four, or I can't think of an example. I really sort of downplay the frequency. They are rare, but they're not unheard of at all. And then as I start to think about it, my, I begin to populate that list with a lot of, lot of words. Uh, I think the, the, the interesting feature is there are very few words that begin with zh that aren't very, fairly recent loan words. Yeah, We have Jean, Jacques, and Jaja, uh, but there are very few words where we begin with zh. And those, really, any that we have, like genre, which brings its French pronunciation with it. I suppose you could say that there, is, there are plenty of people who use the affricate form and say genre uh, and John and Jack. And Certainly the distinction, those words, those names, John and Jack, existed in French and English for a long time and, and were sort of partners distinguished almost exclusively by whether or not they began with an affricate or not. Uh, the... The medial positions uh, are almost always cases of yod coalescence, where 
an S or a Z in a couple of rare cases uh, most often moves into a URE ending. So seizure or azure, uh, but I suppose IER endings like uh, glacier or uh, uh, another one. You see how hard it is to come up with these? <laughs> Um. So S and Z, when they're moving into a Y sound, either an, uh, spelled with an I or spelled with a U, which has a liquid U beginning. I hope that's not too opaque. Uh, so we could say seizure or leisure, or leisure. Uh, and in that case, we're moving into a U-er sound, and the S or the Z represent a Z sound, and Z, Y, is coalesced into Z. The same thing's true with these I-E-R endings. Uh, Hoosier, for example, is a wonderful word. Uh, I was looking in, in Worcester's uh, Universal Critical and Pronouncing Dictionary, which my edition was published in 1863, and I think there are much earlier editions. And he gives this list, and I'm, I'm going to see if you get surprised by it as I was. Uh, the, z is asp- the Z is aspirated, taking the sound of Z, which he spells Z-H, in a few words as brazier, glazier, grazier, vizier, V-I-Z-I-E-R, azure, razure, and seizure. What was that after glazier? Vizier, V-I-Z-I-E-R. Like a v- vizier. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I, I just, I don't know whether that's Worcester's peculiarity or whether it records the way that word was pronounced in English in the late 19th century, uh, but I would certainly not have put it on that list. It's like the lingerie item, the brugier. Hey, lingerie is another <laughs> one of those words that falls into the French category. But yes, a brugier. Brugier. <laughs> I'm sure that would go over well. It sounds so structurally solid, a brugier. So, yes, we do have words that are spelled with G that come to us from French. And these are variable, I'd have to say. I don't know of anybody, I don't think I've heard anybody describe the color beige. No. Uh, But I have heard liege. Yeah, absolutely. My liege. Uh, and there is a sort of interesting thing in the in the Shakespeare world of uh, there's a, an advocacy camp for liege and an advocacy camp for liege. And I, I sort of go back and forth based on the circumstances of the production, of what, it, mm. what it feels like. Uh, and if it's possible to make a distinction in pronunciation by character and class, that can sometimes be fun. So which one is perceived as being higher status, liege or liege? Well, liege to me sounds very Frenchy, and so that would be fancy. Uh, ah. <laughs> however, uh, it's certainly uh, a more recent development and a more American practice to do the French pronunciation over the English pronunciation. Uh, right. But if you're doing a Shakespeare play where the French folks and the English folks are... Uh, in conflict, and that's quite a few, you might want to make a distinction between, yes, my liege, and my liege. Uh, right. But only if it carries meaning is, is the watchword for me. 
there are also words like garage, uh, which interestingly in its English, uh, British pronunciation, garage, garage, would you say that that's a possibility? Uh, sometimes garage. Garage, yeah. So for me, Midwestern Iowa boy, it's second syllable stress and a zh at the end. Garage. But I've certainly heard plenty of people in the United States saying garage with, a, with an African. And in, and in Canada, garage. Oh, that's, sometimes. that's a great one. So the list here, again from Worcester, uh, which is a pretty extensive list, is, and he's saying that these are je sounds, but I believe he does recognize that there's variation. Beige, liege, gigolo, entourage, camouflage, garage, barrage, massage, and rouge. Also, luge, this must not be from Worcester, because I think luge is a much more modern addition. Cortege, collage, dressage, and genre. That's a pretty extensive list. I can't think of any to add to that. And for me, only a few of them would have an affricate. Gigolo, massage, no. Uh, I have heard people say that, I, massage. I, I think I've certainly heard it. It just doesn't feel like something that I would say. It might, right. internal decoder ring says no. <laughs> uh, dressage, no. All, pretty much all of these, for me, are the fricative form. And to me, they sound Frenchier to yeah. a lot of them. Like recent loanwords, things like camouflage and rouge and cortege, dressage, they sound French to me. Well, yes, and, and dressage is something fancy people do with their horses. So it's not, Hattie, want to go down and do some dressage? <laughs> it, I don't think that that's... So Those people context, are doing dressage. Yeah, I imagine if they're doing anything. They're riding horses. Isn't that, a, isn't it that an... Equestrian activity, dressage? Yes, it is, absolutely. <laughs> so we have these sort of, I guess you could call them uh, natural spellings of je uh, or, or ways to get there. One is through French and the other is through yod coalescence in its voiced form. And that accounts, as far as I can see, for all of the instances of je in English. And still, there aren't very many. Yes, very few. Now, there's a set of words that are still variable in terms of their voiced and unvoiced pronunciation. And for me, the word that indicates this is Asia, which for me is, is voiced, but for some speakers is unvoiced, Asia. What's the Canadian tendency, voiced or unvoiced? Voiced, absolutely voiced. Yes. Uh, the... The Longman Dictionary gives uh, the following preferences. In American English, 91% Asia, 9% Asia. British English, 64% Asia, 36% Asia. In those born before 1942, voiced Asia is 32% and unvoiced Asia is 68%. So it's not only a feature of RP, it's a feature of older RP. And there are other words like version uh, that also fall into this category. There, 
variable between version and version. Can you think of any that fall into that category? Mm. I can't. Uh, the, I'm terrible at pulling these words out of my the depths well, of my mind. That's because your mind is so full. That <laughs> I'll have to remember to that. Through. Yes, it's a good excuse. I use it all the time. Um, and I believe we may have talked just before we started recording about fission and fission. Uh, I certainly can recall memories, maybe of myself, but certainly of people that I grew up with, saying fission with a voiced form. And and you had noted this, and uh, also a website that I had seen had called it a sort of back formation or an association with fusion, because those two words go together, and uh, you might decide to make both of them voiced, fusion and fission. Uh, I think I either did that as a child, or I wasn't aware of the difference and was sort of surprised when I, uh, I noticed a distinction. It seems to me, though, that uh, there, if there's variation, then both are acceptable. We don't necessarily need to say that uh, a person is confused. Confused, that was good. Uh, <laughs> not necessarily confusion with a similar word, but just history and tradition uh, it, it seems like one of the acceptable po- po- possibilities. Although, I would say fusible, not fusible, and fissible, not fissible. So it seems to me that there's a voice-on-voice distinction going on in the root forms of those words. Right. Yes, I think that makes sense. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I think it's, you know, when we're dealing with uh, things uh, nuclear... It's challenging. Yeah. (laughs) Even for the best of us. Even for the best of us. I have one little leftover bit on my notes, which uh, I wanted to point out simply because we we do run into German accents. And uh, there's a German rule of S before T or P uh, being pronounced as SH. So Sport. Straße, uh, which is interesting that the consonant context is influencing the pronunciation rather than the vowel context. So we, we Irish would have Siobhan and Sean. Uh, we would have uh, Sure becoming sure. For the German language, the P and T are influencing the pronunciation. But you wouldn't do that before a k. Uh, so sometimes people over-apply the s pronounced as sh in German. Right. So they make all s's into esh. They have yeah. to stop doing that. Exactly. Now, they can stop. Uh, and uh, I'm trying to think of another one. But uh, they, they shouldn't say something like, I'm going to school. because Exactly. The, um uh, interestingly enough, there, there are quite a few uh, spelling differences that lead to sh pronunciations. If you look up the esh uh, symbol um, in Wikipedia, they have a huge long list of all alternate pronunciation uh, spellings to get the sh 
sound from different languages. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm uh, currently in the midst of reading the uh, Stieg Larsson uh, series, uh, the Millennium series, The Girl Who Fill in the Blank. And uh, um, I've, I did a little looking up of Swedish pronunciation because there are so many Swedish place names and character names that uh, I like to pretend that I know how to pronounce things when I'm reading novels that are set in foreign yes. countries. And so uh, I, I spent some time reading omniglot.com, which is uh, a great website for learning about the spelling conventions of a different language. And uh, one of the things that they talked about was the SJ convention in Swedish, that in parts of Sweden, SJ is pronounced as sh. Um, and that, mm-hmm. that was certainly one of the things that Wikipedia included. Um, uh, though, like many uh, Scandinavian languages, there's not just one form of Swedish. There are different forms in different parts of Sweden, and there are S- Swedish speakers who live in Finland, for instance, and they have different pronunciation rules about this SJ spelling um, that uh, uh, are a, l- a little bit different. And then I, I had some fun uh, this week uh, watching the film of the the girl with the dragon tattoo mm-hmm. uh, in Swedish to hear the pronunciations to see how well I'd done. And uh, I had done pretty poorly, uh, <laughs> mostly because uh, Swedish has that lilt sound, this uh, uh, pattern that is part of Swedish that is uh, so different from English. And that seemed to be the most distinctive thing that I got I wrong. Um, but uh, there, there weren't a lot of SJ words in it, so ultimately that thing didn't pay off. Well, I think we can rely on our listener, Eric Singer, to give us more information because Swedish is another language that he's uh, well-versed in. Uh, I did take the opportunity, on our Palm episode, you asked me about Spanish pronunciations, and uh, I quizzed my daughter, and she agreed that uh, was the phoneme... uh, was sort of halfway in between the front and back positions in Spanish and that it didn't really vary much from accent to accent. But we further talked about the j phoneme in Spanish. And uh, as I understand it, it's, it's an allophone of y. So uh, I might say ello instead of ello or ello. I might make that y or that into a je and uh, and if I'm remembering it correctly that uh, for some speakers in initial sort of stress positions it becomes an affricate and that in medial positions or in unstressed positions it stays as a uh, fricative so and uh, and if I understand also further, uh, I think that it is Argentinian Spanish is one of the places where you get a lot of this, I guess you could call it yod coalescence, uh, a, a palatalized lateral becoming uh, post-alveolar medial fricative. That was a little complex, I apologize. <laughs> um, but when we hear some uh, Spanish accents of English, sometimes we're getting in the beginning of a word like you, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Whereas in other instances, you're getting ju, um, so an affricate rather than 
the fricative. And one of the things that I, I really need to do is to do a breakdown of these accents of Spanish because uh, these it's well studied. Uh, there's information about this, and uh, my daughter knows it really well, and uh, uh, she's going to lend me her textbook, and I'll see if I can figure it out. I, I was thinking, you know, once we've made it through all the vowels and all the consonants, maybe we could start doing stuff like that. Yeah, that's an excellent idea. Yeah. Uh, I, I do want to bring up again the notion that we said at the end of our last, and I think we we're sort of coasting in towards the home stretch here, Let's uh, hope so. I, yes. Well, looking at the time, I think that's a good idea. Uh, for those of you who haven't fast-forwarded or finished, thank you for staying with us. Uh, it does seem to me that it would be a really wonderful thing to do a show in which we answer audience questions. And uh, for one thing, it's l- less work coming up with ideas for us, and we'd like to be lazy. Uh, but also, I'd, I'd like us to be a resource uh, I'm not suggesting that we're doing this particularly well, but we do seem to be the only people doing this. And I know there's a community of people out there who are extremely well-versed in phonetics and people who are just learning. Uh, there are a lot of voice and speech teachers and voice and speech students who might use this resource. And so I'd like us to be as as perfect a resource for you as possible. So. Uh, we can be your auditory Wikipedia on these issues. And if you want to reach us, the best way to do that would be to send us an email to glossonomia at gmail.com. Excellent. Uh, or glossonomia, if you prefer. Yes. <laughs> we didn't really bring that up, the, this uh, post-alveolarized S pronunciation, but we did talk about that on the S episode. Yes. The short of Sean Connery short of thing. Yeah. I don't really see... There aren't a lot of instances where there are uh, allophones or variations on the sh sound, though occasionally you'll uh, encounter um, uh, accents where the sh doesn't exist, and so you get more of a s sound. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, One thinks of some variations of Greek accents where they'll use a s instead of sh. And also, if the phonemic inventory of a language has a retroflex S, a sh, 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 which sounds very much the same, uh, I know that uh, Irish has an alveolopalatal fricative, a sh, 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 sh. and I'm wondering, because Irish, the Irish language and English have been in contact for so long, uh, and that's a, another term of art, uh, they They've influenced each other. Uh, I don't hear the sh sound executed in Irish-English accents as a sh. But I, I think that Irish has both, both a pal- palato-alveolar and a post-alveolar fricative. Well, I'm going to have to look that one up. Uh, so there isn't any reason for them to misapply them. They're distinct phonemes for them. Yes. Polish also has both. Mm-hmm. Um, my Polish students occasionally will come to me and say, um, what is this noise that I'm making here? <laughs> and then they'll say it, and I'll go, oh, right, that's that. That's uh, Give me a second while I go look that up, because I don't use it that often. Um, the These uh, uh, alveolo 
palatal. Um, you can see how sounds. often we use it. If we have to slow down every time we say it, <laughs> uh, also occur in in affricate pairs as well. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you get a d instead of a j or t instead of a cha. Um, and in terms of articulation, we're we're sort of using more of the top surface of the tongue yeah. to make a, a closer, more forward sound, which ultimately raises that point of hissiness, the pitch of it gets a little bit higher as a result. So it is quite possible to have both in your speech yeah. to be able to distinguish them. By the um, way, the term alveolopalatal is interesting because it, it doesn't imply the some sort of approachment of these two articulators. It implies touching both of them at the same time with your tongue, with two different parts of your tongue. And so it's an odd use of that uh, prefix alveolopalatal. Uh, it's uh, uh, a linguolabial sound would be tongue to lip. Uh, and in this case, what's being described is the two points being touched by the active articulator of the tongue. And that means that the symbol for it doesn't appear on the standard pulmonic uh, consonant chart. Yeah. It has to sit with the others outside in the corner. Uh, because it doesn't play well with the chart. <laughs> yes. We should mention the two symbols for these sounds that we're talking about. Uh, the curly tail C for the alveolopalatal unvoiced fricative and the S with a retroflex hook for the retroflex sh- No. Mm, uh, I, I thought you were talking about the voiced version, which is the curly tail Z or Z. Oh, uh, yeah, that's... That's the uh, alveolopalatal... Uh, Voiced version. Yeah, right? yeah, I'm sorry. Let's. The let's there are four things that we're talking there are. about. We, I don't know uh, that we talked about the retroflexion one much yet. Okay, so let's first <laughs> deal with the, the curly ta- tailed alveolopalatal. Uh, a regular old C and a regular old Z with the beautiful flourish of a curly tail. Yes. Yeah? Uh, then the other set of sounds, which are the retroflex sounds, where the tongue tip curls back. Uh, past the alveolar ridge and points towards the palate and makes its uh, window of friction there, those are an S with a back hook at the bottom and a Z with a back hook at the bottom. Yes, it's sort of like a tiny J, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. It it has to go down slightly before hooking back, yeah. Okay. And it's on the right-hand side of the symbol in both cases. And does it hook to the right or to the left? To the right. right. Uh, And it's different than the cicedia, which is used in the h symbol, which is in the middle and has more of a bar and hook. This is a fish hook sort of shape. Right. Yes, the cicedia... Uh, always looks sort of like a sickle, as in like a hammer and sickle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're looking on the chart, you'll be able to see the retroflex symbols on the regular chart, but you'll have to look below to the other symbols to see the uh, alveolopalatal mm. symbols. So can we contrast these, perhaps, starting with uh, the the standard S, the alveolar fricative, uh, yeah. and move through them in some way. Yeah, so let's do uh, first unvoiced. We'll do alveolar, alveolopalatal retroflex, which sort of moves back in the mouth. So uh, 
I'll just open it on to ah. We have sa, sa. I made too much pressure there because I was trying too hard. And sha. Uh, do you want to do a, your own version of so, that? So, so can... uh, my quote-unquote regular S, sa, alveolopalatal sha, then the uh, retroflexed sha, um, and the sisadilla palatal sha. Yes. And I suppose we could insert the one that we've been talking about, which is the post-alveolar sha so in there as well. where would you put the post-alveolar in that list of them? I would put it behind the curly-tailed C, because what I'm doing is I'm first using the tip of my tongue fairly far forward for sa, and then I'm kind of mushing everything up, sha, sha uh, which today I seem to be, uh, what's the equivalent of ham-fisted, ham-tongued? <laughs> Uh, I have a mitten on my tongue. I, I'm hearing almost uh, the opposite of yod coalescence. It's yod uh, separation. Sia almost. Sia. Right, right. And they, and both articulations are happening at the same time, but the ish quality is going to linger slightly Sha. further. And so uh, we could either Sha. bring the articulation away simultaneous, simultaneously Xia, xia, xia. Uh, but one part of the tongue is going to be more, it's going to be lazier in leaping away, and it will produce more sound. So there's, there are variants in articulation based on how you peel your tongue it's away. It's interesting. I think what I do is I move my jaw so that the xia, tongue xia, moves xia. as a, a whole. And so I get a, perhaps a little bit less of that peeling away action. Absolutely. Um, so again, so if we, we try to put that in, we, we start sa, then xia, then our esh that we've been talking about today, sha, mm -hmm. and then the retroflex, sha, and finally the palatal, xia. So as we move back in terms of the point of articulation, the <clears throat> the acrobatics of the tongue adjust, mm. either with the tip forward, tip down, what the business end of the tongue is meeting those points of articulation. Yes. And we could do the same thing with the voiced forms. We could start at za. We could go back to za. Uh, now, let me do the, your jaw trick. Za, za, There, za. that was better, yeah. There we go. See, <laughs> we still can learn. Uh, then we move back to a retroflex position, ja, then to the postalveolar ja, and then to a voiced form of the palatal fricative, ja. Ja. Which sort of uh, looks like is, an upside down F, does it not? Yeah, or a barred J, I think is. Right. It, it, it depends on where that bar is, whether it's an upside down F or a barred J. So we'll probably come back to those sounds another time, but. They are interesting variants on the phoneme of sh and zh, that we might hear those sounds, and because we only have the sh and zh phoneme, uh, we'll pull those other sounds into that category. Yeah, if you want to read more about it, Sounds of the World's Languages by Lat Latifoget and Madison is probably the uh, best academic book that will give you a really in-depth, uh, detailed 
explanation of all of those sounds in comparison, and it'll talk about what yeah. languages you might hear them in com comparison or contrasting relationships. Terrific. Well, I thought we were done, and then we had a little second wind, uh, but now I think we're really I done. I think we really are done. <laughs> well, thanks for joining me again today, and uh, thanks to all the listeners. It's a pleasure to have an audience. Yes. We, we'll, we'll talk to you again next week with another vowel. And which, do we know what that vowel is? Well, I, I think we floated the idea that we, we would play with some back vowel contrasts, so we would probably look right. at uh, palm contrasted with lot and thought this time. Excellent, and cloth probably in there too, so that will probably take us five episodes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see you in March then. <laughs> Excellent. All right, it's been a pleasure. As always. Take care. Mm -hmm.